Welcome to the Mind Renewed. They're so worried that they've got to take over down here the direction of where it's going and get the one world system together, get rid of nationalities, get one government, one religion, so we won't have war. That's the effort of man to bring about his own salvation. Hello everyone, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to podcast number 13. But just before I say what it's going to be about, let me take the opportunity briefly to thank those of you who have subscribed to The Mind Renewed in iTunes. Already that has made a considerable difference to the visibility of the podcast in the iTunes store, where now it's appearing in a number of countries where it wasn't previously. So my thanks again to all of you who clicked on that subscribe button. It really has made a difference, so thank you very much indeed. So let's turn to podcast number 13, the Gage versus Moore 9-11 debate. Now, this is something of a departure from what I've normally been doing here on the podcast, and indeed intend to be doing in the future, because today I'm going to be playing the audio of a debate. And the reason why I'm doing this is because this week, in my particular corner of the world here in the UK, it is what we call half-term. And I don't know if that's an expression which people are familiar with in other areas of the globe, but it's simply a midpoint break in the school term when all the schools are closed. And of course, it's an opportunity for people like me to spend some time with their families, which is exactly what I'm doing. So this week, I've not planned anything else for The Mind Renewed. But rather than simply put the podcast fully to sleep for the whole week, I thought that I would instead share with you this debate. Now, I do not want to give the impression that The Mind Renewed is all about 9-11. It's certainly not though no doubt it is something that I will come back to time and again because I do think it's very important. But the reason why I'm revisiting this subject quite so soon is that while I was doing research for podcast number 8, 9-11 and People of Faith, I was reminded of this particular debate, which I first heard probably over a year ago, and I thought it's so good in a number of different ways that I thought I would put it on the podcast and use it at a time such as this. So let me introduce the debate. It took place on the 6th of March 2011 at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and it was entitled Collapse by Fire or Explosive Controlled Demolition. And it was between Richard Gage, the founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth, and the investigative journalist Chris Moore. Richard Gage, of course, argues that the Twin Towers and Building 7 were brought down by controlled demolition. And Chris Moore, of course, argues against that, otherwise it wouldn't be a debate, and argues for the natural collapse theory. So I was kindly given permission from Colorado911visibility.org, who organized the event, and NoLiesRadio.org, who broadcast it. And I took the liberty, of course, at their permission, of editing out some of the introductory longer and coughs and sneezes and bangs, etc., to make it a little easier to listen to. But I do warn you, it is very long. In fact, It is about two and a half hours long, but it's certainly, I think anyway, well worth the time spent on it. And if you've not heard it, I do highly recommend that you do listen to it, because I think it's the most gracious and fair-minded debate on this subject that I have ever heard. And let's face it, on a subject as emotive as 9-11, to find two debaters who are this gracious and this fair-minded, I think that's a pretty rare thing. So please do give this a listen. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, dig in there, be determined to listen to the whole thing, because, as I say, I think it's well worth listening to. So I shall say no more for now, 
other than to add that the debate is moderated by Tom Kiley of INN World Report and ruleoflawradio.com, with whose words of introduction we begin. I want to thank you all for coming out to this historic debate this afternoon uh, between two really uh, great debaters and knowledgeable people concerning specific aspects of the events of September 11, 2001. Despite the passing of many years, the events of September 11, 2001 remain an open wound for millions of people. Additionally, the nature of that day's events still remains an open question uh, for many sincere people around the world. For this reason, the organizers of today's event have brought our two debaters here today to debate one specific aspect of what happened that day, the collapses of the three towers in New York, the two World Trade Center towers and Building 7. The organizers have endeavored to create an event that will handle this sensitive yet controversial information and the debate process itself with the utmost care and respect. And for that, we are grateful for our two debaters who have joined us today. The format of the debate will be as follows. The first section will deal with the collapses of the Twin Towers in New York, with each debater being given 10 minutes to make their initial presentation, followed by two minutes of rebuttal for each. Following this, there will be a series of 10 questions to be asked of one or the other of our debaters. The person being asked will have two minutes to answer, and that will be followed by a two-minute uh, rebuttal, and then we'll have uh, one minute of back and forth per each question. Section two of this debate will focus on the collapse of Building 7. This section will begin with a five-minute orientation on the collapse of Building 7, which will be followed by a series of nine questions directed at one or the other of our debaters with the same two-minute answer rebuttal and one minute back and forth afterwards. At the end of these questions, each debater will be given four minutes for concluding remarks. Our third and final segment will be the questions collected from you, the audience. Uh, the debater to whom the question is directed will have 90 seconds to respond, followed by a one-minute rebuttal from the other debater. We will address as many of these uh, questions as time allows. The organizers and debaters have all come together here today in the great spirit of Socratic debate wherein it is believed that the advancement of knowledge is best served not by spinmeistering or ad hominem rhetoric, but by contrasting opposing sets of ideas about a given subject to learn which one holds up. Our debaters today will be Chris Moore and Richard Gage. And at this time, I would like to introduce you uh, and give you a little bit of knowledge first about Mr. Chris Moore. Mr. Chris Moore trained as a journalist and studied with top St. Louis Post-Dispatch investigative reporters while at Washington University. He wrote Central America for the Beginner, which is about U.S. foreign policy in the 1980s. And the book was an instant sellout. For many years, he published and edited the National Classical Music Magazine on the air. He also wrote an opera called From the Realm of the Shadow, which explores uh, the darker side of human nature. As part of his presentation for today's debate, he has been in contact with the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. You're going to hear that a lot today. The government agency tasked with, with understanding the damage that caused the collapses of the towers in New York. Today he will share with us, for the first time anywhere, the response NIST supplied him with regarding his tough questions about their report in his preparation for this very debate. Will you please welcome Mr. Chris Moore. 
Thank you. Richard Gage, AIA, is a San Francisco Bay Area architect and member of the American Institute of Architects and has worked in that field for more than 23 years. His work has included most types of building construction, including numerous fireproofed steel frame buildings. For instance, his most recent project was the documentation of a $400 million mixed-use urban project with 1.2 million square feet of retail space. The project also included a massive parking structure and 320,000 square feet of mid-rise office space, altogether requiring 1,200 tons of steel framing. Mr. Gage's architectural background, combined with his serious questions about how the New York Towers collapse, has caused him to dedicate his career to understanding the truth about how these catastrophic collapses occurred. To this end, he has founded the organization Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth and is its chief spokesperson, in which capacity he has given over 170 presentations on the subject worldwide. Please welcome Richard Gage, AIA. We are fortunate to have two such passionate truth seekers here today to make their cases to us. In a sense, they embody the division this topic makes through our society, oftentimes in unexpected ways. One of our debaters here today is a self-described Ronald Reagan Republican. The other, a pacifist and peace activist who has protested against American foreign policy many times. Yet here today, it is Richard Gage, the Republican, who is challenging the government's report and Chris Moore, the peace activist, who is disputing Richard's position. However different they are in their approaches to life, politics, and this issue, they are united in their sincerity when pursuing the truth. And for that, we thank them for being here with us today. Now then, we are going to have, as I said, the first segment here focusing on the collapses of the Twin Towers in New York on September the 11th, 2001. We are going to start off with Mr. Chris Moore. Chris, please uh, take 10 minutes to make your opening remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for coming out from New York for this, and thank you for the audience. And I'm also very grateful to all the volunteers who it was a real labor of love to put this together, and I'm grateful for all the respect I've received in the preparation for this. And so I want to start for all of you in the audience with an outrageous request, and that is that you suspend your beliefs just for this evening, whatever your beliefs are, and just listen. Listen even more carefully to the person you most disagree with, and that is not easy. There's a famous attitude polarization study that goes back to 1979 that shows that when people are presented with views that both oppose and support their own, it's almost always strengthening their existing beliefs. So resist that. And allow yourself to really ask, are the things that are being shown to me today true? Is this the whole story, or is it just the part that I want to show you, or is it just the part that Richard wants to show you? And I can demonstrate for you how challenging this is with this a little trick to get us started here. Here are six cards, and I'd like you to please choose one of these cards and fix it in your mind, because now I'm going to remove that card. So there I have removed the card, and... If this is a new trick for you, chances are that you didn't notice that all of the cards in the second part are actually a little bit different 
from the cards in the first one. We have a mental power, pretty much every one of us, just by being human beings, to assume that the other cards are the same, and that blinds us to the truth of what is right in front of our eyes. We all have certain core, uninvestigated assumptions. We often see what we assume what we will see. This evening, you're going to see edited videos. I've put some together. i put some slides together. Richard has done exactly the same thing. And we want you to see certain things, and we hope that you will see those things. But be careful, because you may see only what it is that you want to see. Seeing is believing, but believing is also seeing, is what I'm trying to warn you about. Here's an accusation that I'm afraid um, applies to almost everybody in the world. It's a very, very common thing. MIT professor Thomas Eager was talking about people in the 9-11 truth movement, but I think it applies to a lot of people in a lot of other worlds as well. He said, quote, these people use reverse scientific method. They determine what happened, throw out all the data that doesn't fit their conclusion, and then hail their findings as the only possible conclusion. Now, I don't want to start that as an attack specifically against the 9-11 truth movement at all, but both sides do tend to do this. I've tried to look at both sides to find out what initiated this collapse. I've read dozens of expert explanations. I watched several 9-11 videos. I almost got actually convinced by Richard's video, which I think is the best one out there, frankly. I dug up original, complete eyewitness interviews. I joined an online science Q&A club. I read a 1,000 pages of the NIST report before I fell asleep permanently. Um, I asked some really tough questions directly, though, of NIST. I called them up. I talked to them for about four hours altogether, four different people. They've also given me written answers to some tough questions. Chemist Kevin Ryan, who is very much a part of the 9-11 Truth Movement, I talked to him. Um, Former controlled demolition employee Tom Sullivan. I've asked over a dozen technically trained people to try to stop for a moment and answer these questions for me. One of them, by the way, was a certified structural engineer from New York who believes in 9-11 complicity, but he does not believe in controlled demolition. So I want to talk a little bit about why buildings are built first. We're going to start with the pyramids of ancient Egypt. The pharaohs wanted an immortal home, so they wanted it to be really strong. And the architects said, okay, boss, and several thousand years later, these buildings are still standing. That's not the same with capitalists. They are motivated to minimize expense, maximize profit, fulfill the building code and make the renters feel safe, make it pretty, but that's it. Mostly what they want is office space to rent. So the architects say, okay, boss, hundreds of slender, hollow steel support columns around the outside, a strong core with less than usual concrete support, spray-painted fireproofing on the steel supports instead to lighten up the structure, required structural redundancies to hold three times its weight, But the main thing, boss, is it's going to be 95% air by volume, almost 220 acres of floor space in the Twin Towers, almost one full acre per floor, mostly rentable. We'll also make it beautiful in a modern kind of a way by putting aluminum cladding from Alcoa on the outside, a kind of a thing called T, to help attract the renters. Now, that was a tremendous, that building was a tremendous success, of course, and this is a little bit of a design of what the whole World Trade Center looks like, uh, at least a sort of a map of, of where the different buildings are, you know, the Tower Number 1 and Tower Number 2, etc. In 1993, as a lot of you know, there was a terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. <laughs> After that bombing, inspectors found fireproofing to be deficient. And by 9-11, uh, replacement was completed on 18 floors on the first tower and 13 floors on the second tower. There were long trusses that were developed, very long trusses, very long beams kind of going across to maximize that open space. And then they were sitting on the the, the little little angle that you see there and fastened by five-eighths inch bolts. So I'd like to just jump right in now to the uh, the collapse scenario. Um, 
first of all, the planes hit at 450 to 550 miles an hour, um, depending on who you talk to. The planes were steeply banked, causing maximum damage. 282,000-pound planes were crashing in, and 60% of the columns on the crash side were destroyed. There were other causes. The fire insulation was stripped off right away. The water sprinklers were also um, were cut off, so there was no possibility of that. Um, the collapse of safety factor of three was reduced drastically. There was an eccentric load on the surviving beams. The structural damage went really throughout the building because people were unable to open up their doors 20 and 30 stories below, according to NIST. So 30 seconds after impact, you can see that design right there. And then the fires begin, and that's where the real damage gets going. And um, once, the, once, that, once that plane came in, the explosions began to radiate in every direction. There were 90,000-plus liters of jet fuel that were exploded out there. Fires radiated to all four sides within 15 minutes. This is a Purdue University study picture of what it looked like when the plane – it's their simulation of what, went, what happened inside. Um, and there was a, a tremendous amount of structural damage, as you can see first, and then it, then it went, off from, went off from there to – as the plane came in, as the jet came in, you will, you will see a lot, a lot more damage happening with the fire in just a minute as well. I'd like to uh, say that steel – we know that steel melts at about 2,750 degrees, and so the steel damage um, – bringing it up to 2750 is very, very unlikely to have happened. However, um, on the other hand, steel loses about half of its strength at about 11 or 1200 degrees, and fires um, from, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, from the fuel starts at about 800 to 1500 degrees. We see a small part of the explosion outside. The jet fuel explosions went down to the 77th floor, the 22nd floor down the elevator shaft, into the lobby from the elevator shaft. There was a fatal fireball in the lobby due to elevator fires. There was bad inward bowing of the perimeter columns and a huge differential of temperature along the individual beams and trusses. This is just a little bit of information about steel and different temperatures and what happens to it. The thermal limit of structural steel is only 750 degrees. Beyond that, you can start bending it for, um, for making you know, steel trusses for uh, bridges and that sort of thing. The bright orange flames that you see here would kind of tend to give us a little bit of an idea that maybe the NIST report is right, that 1,800-degree fires were happening because that's the color of an 1,800-degree fire. Um, these major fires were on multiple floors, not just the first four floors or so initially, but then going up more and more. And as you can see, there's even satellite images that show that, this, that the smoke was enormous, that the fire um, spread at record speeds. There was an inward buckling of the perimeter columns, and what happens here um, is that, that there was a sagging that took place. And that, that you can see, there's some photographic evidence of it um, that NIST has provided that shows that in the beginning, the, the, you know, the, the, the things were pretty straight across there, but then one of the floors started to sag, and it sagged quite a bit. And that started pulling it in. Let's see if this video wants to work for me. So what you see here is as the fire comes along, then you see this sagging, and it starts pulling up against the building, and it starts, it starts pulling it inside, which is, uh, which is why... We see that, and we can actually see that in the next picture that's going to happen. That snaps, and then the collapse begins. We have 180 million pounds of building on the top, pretty soon crashing at about um, uh, 100 miles an hour plus. You can see the major Boeing. This could not have been caused by nanothermites. This is one minute before the collapse where you see that picture. And so this, the, the building that had twice the weight above the crash site collapsed twice as quickly. The NYPD aviation said the top of the tower might be leaning just a few minutes before. 
A minute later, they said, buckling on the southwest corner is leaning the building toward the south. And then at 1028 a.m., the roof is going to come down very soon. And then the north tower collapsed just a few seconds after that. The 13-story high facade that was left behind that we all know so well, nanothermites did not pulverize this. It, it stayed up there. It kept its integrity, and that would not have happened. We're going to go to Richard Gage, Mr. Richard Gage, for a two-minute response to this introduction. I didn't see the 13-story portion of the building at the bottom of the Twin Towers. I see a two-story pile. We'll come back to that. Thomas Iger suggests that uh, we're using the reverse scientific method, where we pick our evidence to support our position, cherry-picking it. We'll see today that all of the evidence of, uh, at, the, at the World Trade Center uh, high-rises uh, supports the hypothesis of explosive controlled demolition, and none of it supports the hypothesis of destruction by fire. The building is 90% air, but every building is 90% air. But they don't come down at near freefall speeds. They never have, in fact, prior to 9-11. And yet, we have three examples of that on 9-11. The air is irrelevant. The fireproofing, may, some of it may have been scraped off, but uh, the rest of it wasn't. The plane didn't take all the fireproofing off uniformly all around the, the core structure of the building. Uh, so it's irrelevant, uh, as we'll see, how much of the fireproofing uh, came off. Uh, my opponent suggests that the steel didn't melt. There's plenty of evidence to suggest, including from official sources, that the steel did melt, and we'll see that evidence today. The color of an 1,800-degree fire is not evidenced with thick, dark, black smoke, which suggests that the fire was indeed oxygen-starved and on its way out, particularly in the South Tower, where the flames were dying down when Chief Oreo Palmer suggested that we have uh, two, that, that we have isolated pockets of fire, two of them, that could easily be put out by uh, two uh, lines that they could bring up. Gentlemen, and now let's uh, allow Richard Gage to make his initial 10-minute opening statement. Good evening. After careful examination of the official explanation in, of the destruction of the three World Trade Center skyscrapers, along with eyewitness testimony and forensic data that was omitted from the official reports, the 1,450 architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, along with professionals and citizens in the 9-11 Truth movement, have concluded that a new inv independent investigation into these catastrophic events is both necessary and essential to the very preservation of our democracy. The information assembled by us does not come out of the blue. Millions across our country have joined the 9-11 Truth Movement to expose this evidence to the American people and to seek justice. Why? Well, let's start with the 9-11 Commission, composed mostly of lawyers and politicians, no engineers, who said, among other things, we were set up to fail. It's not to be considered the last word on the attacks, but only a beginning, the report that they issued. And it didn't even include World Trade Center 7's destruction, the third worst structural failure in modern history. Tim Romer on the commission says, 
We were extremely frustrated with the false statements we were getting. Max Cleland, this investigation is now compromised, he stated before he resigned in disgust. It's a national scandal. America is being cheated. The White House wants to cover it up. And John Farmer, senior counsel for the 9-11 Commission, states, I was shocked at how different the truth was from the way it was described. The tapes told a radically different story from what has been told to us and the public. He says there was an agreement not to tell the truth. Speaking of not telling the truth, let's move on to NIST, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, the government agency that is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce under the Bush administration. Though NIST was tasked with analyzing and explaining the three worst and most unexpected catastrophic failures in modern history, the Bush administration allocated far less resources for the task than was used to investigate Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. In their 10,000-page report, NIST could easily have, but explicitly avoided, analyzing the behavior of the Twin Towers after the point at which the collapses began. The focus of the three-year, $20 million study was on how each tower became poised for collapse by the damage caused by the jetliner impacts and the resulting fires on the a priori assumption that those were the causes of those collapse. No other hypothesis for what, what brought down the skyscrapers was discussed in the report, even though all of the evidence you're about to see tonight was available to them. This is not science. This is a cover-up. Tonight, you're likely to hear many of the typical fancy explanations, rationalizations, hand-waving, appeals to authority, and false syllogisms and other logical fallacies that are commonly heard from the defenders of the official accounts of these events. But there are numerous physical impossibilities in these reports in themselves. If any one of them remains unresolved after tonight, the debate is over. And my opponent should be compelled to join us and millions of others across the country in demanding a new investigation. Here are just a few of those physical impossibilities. My opponent must resolve the symmetrical free-fall collapse of the World Trade Center Building 7 without the use of explosives, or the debate is over. The melting of steel girders documented by structural engineers in FEMA, or the debate is over. The documented finding of several tons of molten steel or iron in the debris pile of all three buildings without the use of incendiaries, or the debate is over. The billions of previously molten iron microspheres discovered by the USGS in the World Trade Center dust without the use of incendiaries, or the debate is over. The red-gray chips of advanced energetic nanothermite composite materials found in the World Trade Center dust, or the debate is over. What my opponent thinks, understands, believes, what might have happened is of no consequence unless it is proven. Listen tonight for the easy explanations for the tower's natural collapse from the defenders of the official account. In fact, if the easy explanations for the Twin Towers' demise was so easy, then why did NIST not even provide an analysis of that collapse? They simply speculate about the collapse in a mere one-half-page statement. The structure below the level of collapse initiation offered minimal resistance. The large building mass far exceeded the capacity of the intact structure below to absorb that. It came down in essentially free-fall speed. One half page. And why have we received written support from the FBI upon a written request to investigate these three collapses? The FBI's Assistant Director for Counterterrorism, Michael Heimbach, writes, Mr. Gage presents an interesting theory backed by thorough research and analysis. 
Could it be because we, unlike NIST, apply the time-honored scientific method, which many of us learned in the seventh or eighth grade, being the best way yet for winnowing error from truth? It starts with honest background research, like the structure of the World Trade Center, towers, which, far from being weak and cheap, was robustly designed five times its required capacity to hold up the loads. Per NIST, it was a very redundant, robust structure. It performed its job when the plane impacts hit. They merely speculate that it succumbed to the, jet, to the fires. NIST, it's composed of 47 massive core columns arranged around the elevator shafts and surrounded by 14-inch uh, box columns at 3 feet 9 inches on center. Extremely robust structure. There's more steel on the exterior than there is window space. Let's take a look. NIST claims that the upper block of each of the Twin Towers crushed the lower block, but video analysis reveals clearly that the upper block was fragmented in waves of explosions prior to the crushing of the lower block. Furthermore, the lighter, less strong upper block could not have destroyed the heavier, much stronger lower block, even if the upper block had remained in one piece. NIST didn't even conduct simple calculations or experiments to substantiate their column failure theory of crush down, crush up, which ignores the uniform downward near freefall acceleration observed in the videos. Why did NIST have to falsify, for instance, the computer model with an artificial 5,000-pound lo lateral load on each perimeter column in order to justify the observed inward bowing phenomena which is alleged to have started the structural failure. The inward bowing at the onset of destruction couldn't have been caused by the minimal additional horizontal loads alleged, allegedly applied from these sagging floor trusses. Were they instead caused by the explosive sabotage of the core columns acknowledged by NIST to have failed slightly ahead of the perimeter columns? Did the core columns then pull in the trusses and which in turn pulled in the perimeter columns with, much, with the much greater available forces. We believe that there's ample evidence to back up the hypothesis of the explosive controlled demolition of the Twin Towers. My opponent and I have radically different perspectives on the same body of evidence. We request your patient attention, critical thinking, and follow-up research of your own in order to find your own personal conclusions. Uh, Richard, you have another one minute and 29 seconds if you wish to take I it. I yield my time. Okay, unlike Congress, however, you're not going to get it back later. Oh. <laughs> now then, uh, if we could reset the timer to the two minutes. We're going to allow Mr. Chris Moore to now rebut Richard's opening remarks for two minutes. And thank you. I do have a, a little slide for this as well. First of all, Richard is a master of rhetoric, um, but I promise you that this debate, I'm going to slug it out all the way to the end. Uh, the debate is not over if you're not satisfied with all my answers. I, it's true that NIST didn't talk about the collapse itself, and I promise you we will talk about why. They gave me some interesting answers on the telephone of that. Richard, in his Blueprint for Truth video, always talks about the many ways that this is so much like controlled demolition, that, this, that these collapses that we see, and a hundred other ways I think is completely de different. By definition, a controlled demolition, you have control of all the variables, and everybody who's in the controlled demolition field says the same thing. We have variables like plane crashes, 
30,000 plus workers watching the holes being drilled into their office walls. Paranoid people who, are, who were part of that uh, 1993 terrorist attack and were, were victims of that in one way or another. Hearing tapping sounds, strong smells of welding torches for controlled pr- demolition preparation. Major fires with huge collapses, local collapses all over the place. I did not find one worker who reported that kind of suspicious preparation activity, and not one controlled demo- demolition firm has said it would be possible to carry out a controlled demolition with these incredible vari- variables that are happening. Even former controlled demolition employee Tom Sullivan, a rare person in the business who does believe this was a controlled demolition, told me, quote, not getting this critical timing right results in a hung structure, meaning floors and entire sections not to collapse but rather pile up. It is very hard indeed to get these buildings down in a controlled manner under the best of circumstances when everything is studied and indeed controlled. Well, I'd like to compare for you, oh my gosh, I'm out of time. This is the rumbling collapse of, a, of what we heard on the collapse of the towers. Do we have the sound? I'll give you the comparison later. (laughs) Okay. We're going to proceed now to a series of questions to each of our debaters. You should know that the order in which we're going to ask the questions has been agreed to in advance by the two of them. We'll first start off with a question addressed to Mr. Chris Moore, and it deals with the history of fires in high-rise buildings. Mr. Moore, there has never been a steel frame high-rise collapse from fire in history, yet we are told it happened three times on September 11th. Isn't this really evidence of controlled demolition? It's an excellent question, and actually it's one of the few things that NIST and I and Richard Gage agree on. NIST itself says there is no history of destruction by fire in steel frame high-rises. And I apologize, but I just have to play this one video here. This is, this is a video, you can hear the sounds of the controlled demolition. This is a real have been steel frame structures that have collapsed in controlled demo. Oh, come back. Okay. There are many different places where we have seen the, the collapse of steel structures. The Sound Theater in Pennsylvania, the McCormick Center in Chicago, the Cadell Toy Factory in Singapore, the Mumbai High North Oil Platform, the Interstate 580 overpass near San Francisco. World Trade Center 5 even had a parcel collapse of four floors as well. And we can see that a little bit here. I don't know if nanothermites were just used on those four floors or if they were, or, you know, what was going on. Maybe they had a little bit left over there. People have been surprised by the collapse of steel frame buildings since 1900. Back in the days of the unsinkable ship Titanic, they thought that they had indestructible buildings that were falling down back in those days. Traditional buildings are usually steel reinforced concrete. But one of the very rare buildings that's a very tall building that doesn't have that steel reinforcement is the World Trade Center Towers. Vincent Dunn has seen twisted, warped, bent, and sagging steel in fires. Steel tries to expand at both ends, and when it can no longer expand, it sags. Robert Baring says that steel frame buildings can collapse as a result of fire. This is true for all types of construction materials, not only steel. And if steel can't be brought down with fire, then I wonder why anybody would ever bother to even put fireproofing into a building. Uh, and, and Richard, I, I give you that question. Now Richard Gage gets two minutes to respond. We do indeed put uh, fireproofing into steel buildings because it makes them 
indestructible in fires. Uh, no steel frame high-rise has ever come down due to fires, as you'll see in this slide. Um, we have in New York a 50-story building burned for six hours. In Los Angeles, a 62-story building burned over three and a half hours over five floors. In Philadelphia, a 38-story building burned 18 hours over eight floors. And in Caracas, Venezuela, 17 hours over a total of 26 floors. Did they come down? No. Why? Steel frame buildings, steel structure is an incredible heat sink. It absorbs that heat and conducts it away from the source. So even in the case where there's no fireproofing, like in the Cardington tests, which had 2,000 degree fires, they did not fail. Why? Uh, because the steel uh, does indeed conduct this throughout this heat throughout the building. Now, my opponent showed you a classic controlled demolition with high-energy explosives like C4 and RDX, which have a loud bang, and they have bright flashes. If you were going to do a deceptive controlled demolition, which is what we're seeing in the Twin Towers in Building 7, you would instead use something that wouldn't tip your hand, something quieter, something like an incendiary, which ignites and fizzles in the case of Building 7, uh, doesn't provide those bright flashes, but yields a lot more evidence, which we're going to be showing you uh, in, in just a few minutes. Relative to holes being drilled in preparation, uh, this could be done over a period of months in the World Trade Center high-rises, uh, in which we'll show you how much access they had to, uninterrupted access, unseen by the Mr. occupants Gage, of the up. building. All right, and now we invite our two debaters to talk with each other for one minute. Well, you, talked, you talked about how conductive um, steel is and how it conducts heat away. Well, copper is eight times as conductive as steel, for one thing. And I, and I wanted to ask you about, I, I think you're theorizing about nanothermites. It's sometimes difficult to know exactly what the theory is, because there's so many different ones out there. My understanding of nanothermites is that it's very explosive. Uh, Richard, what do you say to that? Nanothermite is a very advanced energetic material which can be designed in very sophisticated laboratories operated only by the most sophisticated U.S. Uh, de defense contractors, by the way. It can be designed to be as an incendiary and it goes fizzle, or it can be designed very explosively. We don't know exactly how they were designed, but we do have the evidence that we'll be looking at of them. Why are they found in the World Trade Center dust at all? And then my last question, again, as an architect, why, do you, why would you even want to bother putting fireproofing um, onto steel if it can't collapse in fire? Well, because you, you, steel collapses when it is not fireproof. The, 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 the ones you cited uh, collapsed only because they were not fireproof. These are low Time's rises. Up, Mr. Gage. All right. Uh, we're ready now for our second question. And I remind you that the order for these questions was agreed to by our two debaters in advance. And it again goes to Mr. Chris Moore, and it involves the near-freefall uh, destruction of the towers. Mr. Moore, the towers are seen to be coming down very fast, as if in freefall. How can this happen without controlled demolition? Well, thank you. Um, first of all, the towers, I think almost freefall speed is not really accurate. And this says the first exterior panels hit the ground in 9 to 11 seconds. That represents freefall speed. 
Thomas Iger says that most of the building fell at two-thirds of freefall speed and took about 15 seconds to fall. And then the core with its extra structural supports came down last. And there is some recent photographs with some evidence of that. If you look down about two-thirds of the way down there, you can see evidence of the core itself is right there. It is the last thing to be collapsing. 12 or 28 stories of, you know, depending on which one of them, the core comes down later, so as much as 25 seconds after everything else, and that's because it had more resistance to the downward momentum. You know, if, if I was uh, making, if I told you guys I was making almost $100,000 a year, and then you found out that I was making $67,000 a year, you'd think I was exaggerating. Almost free fall speed, or near free fall speed, when we're talking about the towers, is simply not an accurate description of what actually happened. If there were any kind of control demolition, then we would find um, you know, that things would come down a lot faster. Now, F equals MA is the formula that I think that is very relevant here. And I did a little experiment to show you the power of gravitational acceleration. And basically what I did was I took a, a scale that is capable of measuring 300 pounds of weight. I put a 25-pound weight onto that scale, and then I picked it up and I dropped it to see what would happen. What would it measure after only six and a half feet or half of a story? Well, I destroyed the scale. And so that kind of tells you a little bit of something, that F equals MA. Within one second, we have 10 times as much force. That 25 pounds, within just over a second, had so much force that it actually destroyed the measuring device itself. So we have to be kind of, kind of aware of the, of the power of gravity here, and, uh, and, it's, and it's a big one. The World Trade Center buildings, a billion pounds, 100 miles an hour, 180 million pounds crashing down onto it. It's interesting that the scale slowed down the acceleration of the weight. The scale did not pulverize to dust or, or metal fragments. We'll see in the case of the Twin Towers that it did. Controlled demolitions have very specific characteristics. Let's look at a couple. These ten characteristics, including the sudden onset of destruction, uh, are all proof of controlled demolition. Uh, sudden onset of destruction at the base of the tower. Uh, straight down, symmetrical collapse into its own footprint. Uh, demolition waves remove the column supports. That's how we get the symmetry. A free fall speed, often, through the path of what was the greatest resistance, resulting in the total dismemberment of the steel structure, ready, broken up and ready for loading and shipment. Minimal damage uh, caused to adjacent structures. Uh, sounds and flashes of explosions were near nearly uh, as loud as explosions in the case of thermite sometimes, which are heard and seen by witnesses. Uh, enormous clouds of pulverized concrete filling the air, uh, squibs or isolated ejections of explosives going off, uh, chemical evidence of cutter charges. We'll see all this in the evidence tonight. It's all direct evidence of explosive destruction. And guess what? Fire can't create any one of these phenomena, let alone all of them. Additional supporting documentation, like experts agree, yeah, it's a controlled demolition. Government uh, documentation often helps us. This is all proof of a controlled demolition, which we're going to see in the case of Building 7 and the North Tower tonight. Regarding the near freefall, the lightest structure is composed at the top. Uh, let's take a look. We're talking about equal and opposite forces here. The bottom structure is not unlike a Mack truck running into the top portion, which is much lighter, less strong, we have an equal and opposite reaction, even if they're not running headlong into each other. Which one's going to be destroyed first, the Mack truck or the Volkswagen, the lower portion or the upper portion? 
All right, gentlemen, now you have uh, one minute to discuss among yourselves. So you're actually saying that a 180 million pound building top coming down at over 100 miles an hour is not capable of causing a collapse. I, that makes no sense to me. I mean, I, I took a 25-pound weight and, and uh, messed up my scale uh, with six and a half feet. I, I don't understand how you're denying the power of gravity to destroy that building. Let's take a look. We have, what do we see? Do we see a 180-million-pound building uh, coming down at freefall acceleration? No, what we're seeing is the top portion of the building being destroyed itself in four seconds. After that, there's nothing crushing the rest of the building. It's coming down at that near freefall acceleration. It's going faster and faster and faster, straight down through the path of greatest resistance. Not being slowed down at all. It's going faster and faster. This is acceleration. It is slowed down to two-thirds of freefall acceleration. Stop exaggerating, number one. And number two, this, this collapse here, um, well, I've run out of time, so I'll, I'll make that point later. <laughs> well, uh, we have an agreement that even if time runs out, our participants are allowed to finish their sentence. So you are okay, allowed I to think, finish your I sentence. Think, I think I'll drop it for now. Very good. Go ahead. Like Congress, you can't get it back <laughs> That's later. That's right. <laughs> okay. We're going to go again now to Chris Moore. Uh, and we're going to continue. South Tower destruction. The top of the South Tower actually tilted first when it started to come down. Mr. Moore, uh, though the damage to each tower was asymmetrical, the towers come straight down rather than topple over. Isn't this evidence of controlled demolition? Thank you. And first, first of all, um, you know, gravity... It brings things straight down. It's very interesting. I know Richard used this, and this was actually very impressive, the way, the way Richard used this in, um, in his, in his uh, you know, Blueprint for Truth video. This, this he sees where, where the tilting tower um, starts tipping 22 degrees on the south tower. And then he says, you know, angular momentum should keep that kind of going. Well, all three of the buildings, in every case, all three of the buildings began their collapses into their weakest points. This is the most dramatic one that has a 22-degree um, thing where the collapse begins just above the crash point. And Tom Sullivan, again, the controlled demolition guy, says you couldn't have a controlled demolition in a fire zone. So he says that the plane crashes would have to be precisely planned and the demolition starting away from the fires. But these collapses started right inside of the fires. If these explosives were placed, they would have been destroyed and damaged. Explosives burn, detonate, or chemically degrade in high heat. They're very sensitive components. Controlled demolitions could not instantly write a 180-million-pound block that would not be possible. Um, so sometimes you say, well, well, why didn't it just tip over more? You need some kind of lateral force to do that. You can't just have something tip over um, unless there's enough force. If there's angular momentum, if there's enough angular momentum, it will tip over all the way. If there's not enough angular momentum, and it did get to 22 degrees, gravity, in this case, trumped it. There wasn't enough angular momentum, and it came back down again. So that, that explains very simply, and as soon as it started coming down, gravity took care of the rest. Gravity, gravity, gravity. I keep telling you that. Um, and uh, the fast descent of the building, um, it, many of the engineers and, and experts that I talked to said that the, the building would collapse to the ground before it even had time to tip over, even if it were, if it did have enough angular momentum. Um, and the crushed structure does resist, and the reactive force tends to keep the upper block straightened back out again. So those are just a few of the things that, that I wanted to say about that. But I talked to so many people, and almost every single expert that I talked to agrees that, that this, would have, this would have ended up coming straight down, that gravity trumps it all. Richard? Well, I wish that were true. Uh, we have 
22 degrees off center of this massive structure. But what happens? It, it, we would expect it to fall in some mangled heap at, at the bottom. But what does it do? It disintegrates. It, 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 it defragments into its individual structural components, which, as we'll see, are then hurled uh, in, in all directions symmetrically outside the footprint. The structure is completely dismembered. And we have, uh, at, the, at the base, underneath this incredible d destruction, like the firemen described, 118 of them, who were interviewed in the oral histories, bands of explosions, pop, 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 all the way around the building, traversing ne nearly free-fall acceleration. Again, faster and faster, not slowing down. There is no deceleration occurring in either Twin Tower. While they're not at free-fall, they are darn near it. But it doesn't slow down. It gets faster and faster. We would expect asymmetry at the, at the base of these towers given that there was asymmetrical damage from the airplanes, asymmetrical damage from the fires, and asymmetrical loading from this massive heap, uh, this massive top portion that is off-center from below. But what do we see at the base? Complete symmetry of equally distributed, individually cut structural columns. It's, it's an outside uh, the footprint of the building. This is supposed to be a gravitational pancaking collapse. What do we see at the base? anything uh, but a pile, and we'll be looking for those floors in that pile in a moment. All right, gentlemen, one minute to, to go back and forth. Well, you talked before, Richard, about um, the, you know, how the, the top disintegrated in four seconds, and that seems to be true. We have two essentially monster pile drivers pushing against each other. Within four seconds, the top has lost its structural integrity. But I don't think that that means very much in terms of the mass. The mass is still there. It's still coming down at 100 miles an hour, and I would not want a, a ton of bricks falling on my head, even if they were broken up, coming onto my head at 100 miles an hour. I'm sorry. It, it doesn't make sense that just because they're broken up, they have no mass anymore. That seems to be what you're implying. Well, no, actually, what would feel better on your head, a box of apples falling on it or individual apples from that box? What we have is the individual structural elements that are broken up, how can they crush the building uh, at any rate when they're, when, when they're totally defragmented? Well, I, again, I, I still say that you're, you're not taking gravity into account. The fragmentation of it doesn't change the mass, and the mass is coming down at 100 miles an hour. And I'm sorry, but I don't think anything can stand up to that. The, the problem is, All right, is that it's... Uh, out of time, and um, we're going to go next to a question for Richard Gage. Mr. Gage, the lateral ejection of heavy objects... Uh, we have a question for you. Heavy steel beams were ejected from the building, and some travel pretty far. Can't this happen from a natural collapse as the beams are being snapped off? Well, indeed, we have a quite incredible ejection from these buildings. Uh, in fact, they're landing uh, these 9-ton and 4-ton perimeter wall units are landing up to 600 feet away. They are ripped into the outside uh, facades of the surrounding buildings, they are clocked by physicists at, with their horizontal vector traveling 70 to 80 miles an hour, instant speed, laterally. Now, this can't be caused by air pressure because the air pressure is not enough. Uh, it's about 14 to 20 pounds per square inch, uh, as we'll see here. The, the air pressure cannot be developed sufficiently 
all of that minimal air pressure, less than what's in your bicycle tires at home, would be going out through the windows, not blowing these heavy structural units laterally. It just can't happen. It takes incredible energy, uh, like the energy required of a 200-pound cannonball blowing three miles away. Uh, and there's lots of these perimeter wall units in all directions, symmetrically landing up to 600 feet away. It's absolutely uncanny. Richard, you continue being generous with your time. We're now going to go to Mr. Moore for two minutes of rebuttal. Okay, thank you. We have, um, I, I'm going to actually borrow the slide that uh, Richard used just now about the uh, lateral ejection, if we can switch over to that. And it's not as good as, as his, and I apologize for that. But this is, this is a model of lateral ejection caused by natural collapse. As the building collapse, as, as the speed increases on the collapse, Air is pushing out faster and faster, causing greater lateral ejection, which is exactly what you see um, in, the, in that there. There is very, very little lateral ejection at first when, the, when this goes. Now, if it were all being done by, by a controlled demolition of some kind, then you would see that the lateral ejection would be pretty much the same all the way down. But look, look carefully, and you'll see that that is absolutely not the case. It starts out very, very little, very, just, just a little bit of... Um, lateral ejection, and then as it goes down, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That's because of acceleration. What we see happening here is an enormous amount of air. One half million cubic feet of air per floor being pushed down at something like 12 or 13 floors per second. That's 100,000 pounds per square inch, 482 mile an hour winds. Yes, that is very, very possible to take large things and move them around. Um, I apologize. Here we go. Here's an example of something from Hurricane Andrew. You may have seen pictures like this. Okay, one-fourth the speed of the air that was coming out of the towers during their collapse. And here you see that Hurricane Andrew impaled plywood with winds of only 124 miles an hour or so. The plywood goes right through. And I think that it's very, very possible that speeds that are more than twice that of a tornado can cause the kind of damage that we see with that lateral ejection. It would seem to me to be absolutely inevitable. And I might add that anything, if it's a controlled demolition, I might add, Richard, that that makes it impossible for it not to be a very explosive controlled demolition that is very, very loud. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to shoot all that stuff out. My air pressure thing is a much better explanation for it. All right, gentlemen, you have one minute to go back and forth on this. And, of course, uh, I disagree with you on this point, Chris. Really? <laughs> uh, uh, these isolated ejections uh, are occurring 20, 40, even 60 stories down below. If these were evidence of, of air pressures, what uh, incredible air pressure, we wouldn't see them in highly engineered, pinpoint accurate uh, uh, ejections that occur at the midpoints of the facades. We would see all those windows blowing out uh, at once, if any of them. Well, wait but a minute. Now, hold, just a second, though. If, you had a, if, you have, if your tire blows out, it doesn't blow out all over the tire. It blows out in, a, in its weakest spot, right? Okay, that's fair, but we don't have enough air pressure to blow out even the windows in this case. It's very well documented here, about 15 pounds per square inch, because one floor is falling at a time, and there's trusses under each floor. So that creates an air cushion for the, for the air pressure to get out. That's not, not, not a half million cubic feet per oh. floor times 100 miles an hour coming down. I'm sorry. Gentlemen, time up on okay. this uh, back and forth. All right, then. We're going to go now to uh, another question for uh, Chris Moore. 
Uh, it involves these uh, squibs and isolated ejections that they're talking about, air pressure explosions. Mr. Moore, puffs of smoke, uh, which look like explosions, appear sometimes up to 20 to 30 stories below the destruction as the towers came down. How could this be possible in a natural collapse? That's a good question, actually. And I want to, first of all, talk about the randomness of these uh, squibs. I know that Richard is going to try and tell you that they have a pattern, um, but if you combine it with the new David Chandler video of squibs that are not only kind of in the middle section that Richard talks about, but now he's finding squibs right by the edge as well, then we see that the, the squibs taken as a whole have a very, very random pattern. There's no orderliness to it. Any kind of controlled demolition would have some kind of orderly pattern that would be easy to find, not by just trying to create some artificial pattern later on. If the squibs were controlled demolition, then they would go off before the collapse begins, but the squibs happen only after the collapse began. Survivors talked about a hurricane wind that they felt in the stairwells. And if the squibs were explosive demolition charges, they would have created structural deformations, and that absolutely did not happen as well. The squibs also are opposite the kind of pattern that you see in an explosion. Watch this carefully, down about two-thirds of the way down. It starts slowly in the squibs. See, there it goes, and then it gets bigger. It's the, an explosion starts big, and then it gets smaller. Um, so that's, that's just, a, and, you know, just one more example. And also, if these squibs were premature charges that were going off, which I know that Richard and many others have, have suggested, then there would also be other charges perhaps. This is obviously an imperfect controlled demolition now, right? And if that's happening, then we have others that aren't going to go off at all. Not one person has ever found physical evidence of controlled demolition in the, in the, the rubble when they were going through it. They never found an unexploded cap or, an, or a, a radio receiver or anything like that. Um, a 110-story building, by the way, of 95% air would leave a debris pile of only about six or seven stories if all the air were removed, and I think it was about 13 stories, just for what it's worth. But the, uh, the squibs themselves... Um, are, for me, evidence that the, the shock waves that are traveling up and down at almost the speed of sound from the collapse up higher are creating horrible structural problems as the collapse is beginning. And as a result of that, the squibs kind of come out in relatively random patterns as a result. Well, here's what we do see at the bottom of the pile, uh, a two-story pile. How many floors of the 110 floors are found, each an acre in size? None. The photographs show generally no floors, four-inch thick concrete over metal decking. Uh, they were completely pulverized. Uh, what we see is core columns and perimeter columns. We're looking for pancakes in a pancaking collapse, especially a 110-story building, which should be 30 stories at least of flooring, including 10,000 floor trusses that are missing. Uh, regarding these squibs, these are pulverized building materials that are occurring, that are occurring. They're, they're clocked at 160 to 200 feet per second. These are, these are explosive speeds. And if this was a natural collapse with this large uh, section uh, pushing down the rest of the building, which we already saw was destroyed in the first few seconds, we wouldn't see this remaining tower uh, rising up. In fact, that remaining tower is evidence that the air pressures, the massive air pressures, which my opponent is discussing here, would be, have a, a great channel way up through that defragmented mass uh, so that it would relieve itself upwardly, not push down through, again, the path of greatest resistance, but it wouldn't be developed at all, not even to the 
to the bicycle pressure speeds of, of 30 to 50 psi. We have these focalized ejections uh, that occur uh, in open office space. How do we get pinpoint ejections halfway through, halfway across the midpoints of the facade when most all the floors look like this, open office space? Uh, all those windows, again, would blow out, if any of them. But no, uh, we see these highly focalized, pinpoint accurate, geometrically precise, violent ejections occurring in this engineered pattern. Gentlemen, one minute. Well, first, I want to be sure, because I, I think Richard might be confusing the squibs with the lateral ejection. I could be wrong. Maybe you can correct me on this, Richard. I don't believe that there were any massive um, lateral ejection of huge bits of, you know, hunks of steel 30 stories below the collapse. I think squibs were happening, little, little jets. Am I correct on that? Agreed. Okay. So I just wanted to be sure we're clear about that. Also, you were talking about how it's only two stories. Um, that's above. And then if you go digging down, we find at least four more stories of rubble under, underneath the towers because it came crashing down underneath. Actually, what we see in the slide that we're about to see is the <laughs> remaining shards. This is proof that the basements did not collapse down. There are no stacks of floors from the ground floor up, uh, down stacked up in the basement. Uh, the shard, the perimeter shards do, in fact, show that that cave-in did not happen. Well, gravity does terrible things, and that's why we couldn't find the floors. I'm convinced of that. All right. Um, we're going to now ask Mr. Gage another question. It's concerning uh, something you briefly mentioned, pulverized concrete and metal decking. Mr. Gage, you claim that the uh, preponderance of dust from the collapses indicates controlled demolition. Shouldn't one expect this from the crushing of a natural collapse? Well, let's see what we would expect from a natural collapse. Uh, well, from explosions first. Uh, like this uh, eruption, volcanic eruption in the Tongan Sea. Upward, outward, arching streamers. Uh, violent symmetry, uh, evocative of the geometry of fireworks. Thick pyroclastic clouds with intense heat causing the cauliflower-like formations uh, from that intense heat uh, and, and, and known explosions. Is there any similarity in the development of the destruction of the Twin Towers, well, the, the North Tower, which you see on the left. Again, upward, outward arching streamers, thick pyroclastic clouds, intense heat causing uh, that. Does it look to you like a gravitational collapse? Is there enough similarity in these two, uh, these two different systems to warrant a new investigation into the possibility of explosive controlled demolition? particularly since it looks like one and since no fire has ever brought down a steel frame skyscraper. Again, where is all the concrete? We don't see it at the base. It's spread throughout lower Manhattan in a 4 to 12 inch thick blanket. 30% of this dust by tests is composed of finely ground concrete, 100 micron particles like talcum powder. Where's the metal decking? 220 acres of thick metal decking. I found it in the World Trade Center dust. It comes up to a magnet. Galvanized iron particles like metal filings. 10,000 file cabinets missing. And the victims, 2,749 of them, but 1,000 of them are still missing. Pieces small enough to fit into a, a test tube, 6,000. And Richard, yet 786 bone fragments are found on top of a building 500 feet away 
250 feet away, high rise that is 500 feet tall. How did they get there? How were they so small? Time is up. Uh, now we're going to go to Chris Moore for a response. Well, Richard, every physicist and every engineer I've ever talked to, with the exception of Gordon Ross, um, insists that there was plenty of energy to gradually pulverize three to four inch layers of concrete on every floor. We, we ask ourselves how, how all this dust, and I have this huge dust cloud that I have up here as a little bit of a demonstration, which is a mixture of concrete and gypsum and that sort of thing. How could all of that have happened from, from a simple natural collapse? I come back to gravity again. Um, First of all, you don't, have to con you don't have to pulverize the concrete on every floor as you go. You can have it keep getting smashed and smashed and smashed and smashed until it's fully pulverized and then it comes, then it comes out. I'd like to mention also that rescue workers walked on cool rubble right after the end of the, uh, uh, of the collapse. They were out there before Building 7 even collapsed. I don't know how 4,500-degree nanothermites could possibly be consistent with that fact. Pyroclastic clouds that you talk about in your comparison with volcanoes, it kills entire villages. And, and the one in, um, in Indonesia, I think it was, in 2009, is a really good example of that. Thousands of pyroclastic cloud survivors needed, needed ventilators. It was, a, it was a terrible thing for that, those people because they were breathing 1,100 to 1,400 degree air. Many of them died. Yes, this does look like the kind of thing. This is a real pyroclastic cloud. In the daytime, it looks like what happened at the, at the World Trade Center, but it is not. If you look at it at night, you can see it is red hot. It is glowing. Where are the people who are covered in fresh dust and debris from 9-11 who had to go on to ventilators by the thousands that didn't happen? I've hypothesized that the 9-11 dust might be warm, you know, perhaps a little bit warmer because of the fact that it was mixed in with some of the floors with fire. And there is someone who actually just told me as an eyewitness recently that that was the case, that it was warm dust and not just cool dust. The other thing that I also wonder about, Richard, is just the question of, you know, here, well, here, here you have all these people, for one thing, that are just kind of running through. Um, but we don't, have, we don't have reports of that kind of a problem. And we have paper all over the place. How is that consistent with millions of pieces of paper flying all over the place after this, after this collapse? It, it doesn't, it's not consistent with 4,500-degree nanothermites. Well, it's clear that the explosives uh, sent paper flying everywhere, and, and nanothermite can be engineered as an explosive. But things happen in stages, explosions and then paper flying everywhere relative to the energy required uh, to pulverize concrete. There is a massive amount of gravitational potential energy in the building, about 100,000 kilowatt hours. But there is no mechanism to pulverize the concrete. You Gravity? can have all the gravi potential gravitational uh, in the Niagara Falls, but you don't get g electricity unless you have a generator. I don't need electricity. All I need is gravity. 180 million pounds coming down at 100 miles an hour. That pulverizes three inches of concrete real fast. But it doesn't pulverize metal decking into fine uh, metal filings. I would say it does. I would say there's more than enough gravitational power to do all of those things. We'll have no to doubt in my mind about that. We'll have to agree to disagree <laughs> Okay. On Maybe we can agree uh, for a, another debate sometime in the future to get to some other questions. But in the meanwhile, we still have some here. Let's go again to Richard Gage with this one. Eyewitnesses of explosions in the Twin Towers. Mr. Gage, you claim that people heard explosions during the collapses, and this indicates controlled demolition. Wouldn't this be happening as the building came down during a natural collapse as well, random explosions? Well, indeed, we'd, we'd expect some explosions in a fire or in a, in a gravitational collapse, but we've already ruled out gravitational collapse. Uh, what we're now looking at is the witnesses, uh, 118 of them, 
that reported orally uh, to the chief fire commissioner, Thomas von Essen, uh, that they heard sounds of explosions. They saw flashes of light, 118 of them hearing one, the other, or both, uh, such as uh, this firefighter. Somewhere around the middle of the World Trade Center, there's this orange and red flash coming out. It seemed like on television when they blow up these buildings. It seemed like it was going all the way around, like a belt, all these explosions. You can see this in controlled demolition on the left, uh, falling rapidly at near freefall acceleration. Is there any similarity, enough to warrant a new investigation into the possible use of explosives? Maybe so. Saw a number of brief light sources being emitted between floors 10 and 15. Why are they seeing light sources well down below the fire floors? I saw low-level flashes. With each popping sound, initially an orange, and then a red flash came out of the building. Then it would just go around the floors on all sides. What are we seeing here on the south tower? Uh, is it similar to a controlled demolition on the left? Given that no steel frame high-rise has ever collapsed due to fire, is it prudent to at least analyze the hypothesis of explosive controlled demolition, given that it looks exactly like one? I saw a flash, flash, flash. Then it looked like the building came down. I thought the terrorists planted explosives somewhere. That's how loud it was, a crackling explosive. All of these witnesses were reported to NIST. None of them were reported in the final report by NIST. What did these guys say? Mr. Moore, two minutes in response. Okay, I, I actually think that um, our eyewitness accounts um, can give us some very good evidence for natural collapse. First of all, 72% of them, um, as you can see on the slide that's about to come up, smelled jet fuel in the stairwells, and that's a very, very important fact. Um, but what I think is most important is the randomness of the eyewitness accounts. If there were a controlled demolition, there would be... Along with it, there would be a pattern to this, that people would be seeing and hearing the same kinds of things. The eyewitnesses' accounts of explosions talk about fireballs. It talks about little flashes of light, the ground shaking with no other apparent effect or no change in the structure. People like eyewitness Philip Morell explain the cause of the ground shaking in the basement, which he first thought may have been some kind of explosion, as a freight elevator crashing. And that, by the way, in 9-11 Mysteries, that part of it was edited out, I might add. Movies like that do edit out parts of the interviews sometimes. Other random explosions um, followed the appearance of white smoke. White smoke kills dozens of firefighters every year. And so we, we have um, a, a, lot of, a lot of problems with just saying that, yes, of course, there were eyewitnesses that were reporting explosions. But the most important thing is that there's no seismic evidence of any major explosions. We have the, the, the seismic evidence shows two planes crashing into the buildings, nothing. And then the two crashes and the collapses of the buildings. Those are seismic events that are major explosions. Explosions happen in fires all the time. Firefighters die from natural causes, from natural fire um, explosions of all different kinds. Firefighters' account, accounts, almost all of them, are of, of sounds around the collapse time and not, not before the collapse time. Some explosions from the fuel and the elevator shafts and in the basements, like I was talking about before. And we really do have to watch out for that white smoke. That is actually evidence, and it can sometimes be a not very hot smoke. Um, that white smoke is something that happens right before an explosion um, and that has caused the tragic loss of life of many, many firefighters in our country. This is our Now, one the one minute back and forth. In fact, Chris, there is plenty of evidence to suggest there were explosions before uh, the the uh, jet plane impacts, uh, as well as before the collapse of the towers. 
And these explosions that are occurring at the onset of destruction are, are, are uniform, e- evenly paced, and not as easily picked up by seismic uh, devices. Well, <laughs> the, the, anything that's not picked up by these seismic devices, some of which actually some of the portable seismic devices were right, right in the area, not far away, and, and then the, there was a major seismic um, device that was only 30 miles away. That was close enough. Um, if, 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 there were, if they were not big enough to be registered on the seismic record, they're not big enough to cause a structural problem in the building. Also, we have uh, only one witness smelling kerosene in, in, in throughout the building. And the other 72% were smelling what? Uh, I don't know what That's they what were NIST smelling. That's says that they were smelling jet fuel. But uh, I challenge your, your, your facts in that case. That's because it came from NIST. Well, um, <laughs> we're going to have to leave it at that. Next question, and I again remind you, this order was agreed upon by both our debaters, is to Richard Gage. Molten steel, iron microspheres. You claim that there were, uh, was molten metal below the wreckage piles and tiny iron microspheres found in the dust, both of which indicate a controlled demolition. Why couldn't these things happen from the fires in the towers? Well, let's, let's take a look. Uh, in fact, this is another uh, point of evidence uh, for explosive controlled demolition because we do not have the heat that's capable of developing molten iron or steel pouring out of the South Tower 10 minutes prior to its collapse. This is clearly not any other metal than iron or steel because we know because of the color. Uh, aluminum from the jet planes is what we, would, what we were told uh, by NIST, and yet uh, what happens when we have melted airplane is uh, that it's silvery in color. doesn't glow bright orange like that, so we know this is not aluminum from the jet plane. Who's attributed to have said uh, after 21 days after the attack, the fires were still burning and molten metal was still running? Leslie Robertson, uh, his uh, associate Richard Garlock, says the debris past the columns was red hot, molten, running. Uh, Red hot steel being pulled from deep within the pile. Literally molten steel, says the president of the company. Steel flowed in molten streams. Molten steel at the heart of the tower's remains. And these gentlemen, what did they experience? See, molten steel. Molten steel running down the channel rails. Like you're in a foundry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like lava. Like, like, like lava. Volcano. Structural engineers like Abelhaz and Astani documented the melting of girders in the debris pile, in this case under World Trade Center 7. FEMA, the original writer of the first report, the BPAT report came out in May of 2002, documents the melting of steel with hot sulfur corrosion attack. Um, steel takes, as my opponent mentioned, 2,700 degrees to, to melt. The fires and the jet fuel, which is only kerosene basically, can only get to be about 1,400-1,600 degrees. That's it. It doesn't melt steel, making it look like Swiss cheese. We have rapid oxidation, sulfidation, uh, hot sulfur, uh, molten iron, they document. Not, melt, not even melted steel, invading the grain boundaries of the steel. Mr. Gage, time up. Mr. Moore, your response. Well, first of all, that, that image of the molten debris that's coming out of the side of the building, what a coincidence that a big giant aluminum plane went into that hole and then about an hour later some molten something came out. Uh, Richard would deny that that is aluminum. Uh, this is not aluminum coming out of a foundry. I want to remind you that this is a, a soup that's mixed up with, uh, with office furniture and curtains and, and uh, 
tens of thousands of, uh, of uh, uh, sheets of burning paper and all those kinds of things. So, of course, it's going to be discolored. That, that's, that's natural. I mean, that's always going to happen. Um, the other thing that's, that I think is worth mentioning is that the uh, NASA thermal images that, uh, that Richard likes to talk about and others show 1,400-degree temperatures in the debris. That would be very consistent with melted aluminum, just as an example. We have 1,000 cars in the parking garage. All that Alcoa aluminum on the outside is the outside coating of the building on every single floor, enormous amounts of aluminum. And that could have created those, those, uh, those pools of molten steel, quote-unquote. I'm not denying that the witnesses saw that. Some people have tried to deny that, but I don't think that's, that's a very smart way to go. It was there. It was definitely there, but it did not exceed 1,400 degrees. It was not molten steel. When we get into sulfidation of steel, that is a, a bit of a complex thing. Um, when sulfur and steel... Uh, be, become a eutectic mixture, what happens is that the melting point of that eutectic steel goes way down because it, because it uh, re retards the crystallization. I don't want to get too technical, but the, the result of that is that the steel that has been uh, sulfidized then has a melting point depending on who you talk to, somewhere around 1,500 to 1,800 degrees. So, you know, just kind of keep in mind that that kind of steel can melt. There's no doubt about that. Um, and so I just, I just wanted to mention that. Um, steel from the burning floors, um, we, we can see here's, here's the 1,400 degrees that I was talking about before in those, uh, in those um, examples here. And so I just think I'll stop. Oh, I have to stop anyway. <laughs> okay. All right, gentlemen, one minute. Well, in fact, let's see what... Uh, uh analysis shows. This is clearly uh, what you're seeing on the slide now is molten uh, iron, not, not even molten steel. It's, it's, it's a chunk of molten iron. Uh, tests are performed on it, electron microprobe data, and they rule out aluminum from the jet planes. In fact, they rule out structural steel, and it has aluminum, sulfur, and potassium in it. Fluorine and manganese, these are the chemical ingredients of thermite, and thermite can be uh, put into patented devices which are made of consolidated thermite where the cutting charge itself, you said no evidence, it, it, the cutting uh, casing itself is, is decomposes and ignites and, and, and releases molten iron, as a matter of fact. I'd, I'd actually have to look more. I'll, be, I'll have to be honest with you. The, the, the evidence of molten iron itself is not something that I've researched enough to be able to, to rebut for you. Well, I think that's a great example of the forthrightness that our debaters are bringing to the debate. We've got one more question in this section, and it also goes to Richard Gage. Uh, Nanothermitic composite incendiaries in the World Trade Center dust. Mr. Gage, you point to a controversial scientific paper which claims to have found the presence of unexploded red-gray chips of nanothermite. Couldn't this just be paint chips from the destroyed buildings? Well, let's take a look first. But uh, let me note that there is no explanation from the official side for all of the molten uh, iron at the site. Let's look at some more examples. What do officials, the USGS, R.J. Lee, find billions of previously molten iron microspheres, the diameter of a human hair? They find it in all of the dust. Again, it comes up to a magnet. Uh, which, because it's iron. Uh, what do they find in, in these? Uh, R.J. Lee finds that it is molten iron, previously molten iron. How did it get there? If you had thousands of cutter charges throughout the columns and beams in the building, and under explosive conditions, that would be dispersed. The byproduct of, liquid mol of, of, of thermite is liquid molten iron. 
When a liquid is dispersed, it forms what? Spheres, billions of them. They cool and they fall with all of the dust. There's no other explanation tonight, tomorrow night, or for the last 10 years for these iron-rich microspheres are found in the World Trade Center dust. Here's thermite going off. What do we find? Thermite reaction that forms into a sphere roughly due to surface tension, and they'll solidify in the air. And so all that information is preserved in the dust. Not only is it preserved in the dust, but it has the chemical analysis of ignited thermite as well, as do the unignited thermite ships found, these red-gray particles, red on one side, gray on the other, found by this international team of scientists in every one of the four samples they collected in and around ground zero. Sixteenth of an inch long, red on one side, gray on the other. They have the chemical evidence of thermite. They, they, this is what's analyzed, aluminum, sulfur, iron, etc. The red side we zoom into 50,000 times. What do we see? Tiny nanoparticles of thermite, intimately mixed with nanoparticles of aluminum. This is extremely sophisticated material made only in the most advanced defense contracting laboratories. Time it up, should Mr. not Gage. be found in the World Trade Center dust. I'm, uh, before we allow uh, Chris Moore's response, I'm going to invoke uh, moderator privilege here and ask Mr. Gage to refrain from attempts at mystifying the audience. That was a missed joke. Anyway. Uh. <laughs> We're getting at that point in the, uh, in the proceedings. Yeah, we're getting punchy. Uh, now uh, for Chris Moore's response. Well, actually, one of the, and this is an honest question, Richard. I, uh, later on when we talk together, I'd like to ask about, um, about how much of that molten iron was in there because is it tons and tons and tons or there are just a few examples of that? But we, we will get to that in our, in our discussion back and forth. These iron microspheres um, have been quite, a, uh, quite, quite baffling to me, actually, at first. Um, and... NIST, I, I talked to them about the micro, iron microspheres on the phone and in, and in emails, and, I, and they said, well, there's no chain of custody for the samples, that it's, it was out there with those guys like Stephen Jones, and therefore we can't trust it. Um, I actually, I actually kind of do trust it. I wouldn't say 100%, but I'd say there's a good chance that those are authentic samples that he collected, um, having looked at the uh, information. I've heard debunkers speculate that the microspheres are from extensive torch cutting of the debris following the collapse. I've determined that that's extremely unlikely based on how that that dust was collected. I've heard about combusted coal from the residue of the original concrete, printer toner. Um, I have also heard small pockets of intense heat. All of these claims I've been unable to validate. I looked at every single one of them, and just like I just I just came up. Uh, dead. NIST also said that a dust analysis would not necessarily be conclusive, that the metal compounds would also have been present in the construction materials making up the World Trade Center. Sulfur is present in the gypsum wallboard, for example, and there's a lot of other things like that as well. The best answer that I can come up to about the presence of the iron microspheres is this. This building was put together with tens or hundreds of thousands of weldings of steel. And when those welders were in there, they were bringing it up to very, very high temperatures to weld the steel together. And as a result of that, back in 1972 and 1973, enormous numbers of iron microspheres were created by the original construction crews with all their welding torches. So I want to ask you, Richard, if you think there's any possibility that the iron microspheres just could have come from that. One minute, please, gentlemen, <laughs> between the two of you. Yeah. A fair question. We, we have e evidenced uh, in the spheres that were that were analyzed by the USGS of the same chemical analysis that we have in spheres um, that were produced by thermite. 
So they have aluminum, manganese, etc. Relative to the uh, tons of molten iron, here's just two examples of thick meteorites uh, that weighed at least a couple of tons each. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we have... And how does that compare, while you're doing this, to um, the, the, <laughs> the billion pounds of building that we started out with? How many, do we have a few tons of this? Is that what you're saying? Well, there's, there's, there's enough evidence for a global nanothermitic collapse? I don't ten, think so. There's evidence for 10 tons of iron spheres. In fact, there's 6% of the dust by R.J. Lee's uh, analysis is these iron spheres. It doesn't seem enough to justify a global, a global collapse. All right, we're going to have to leave it at that. This concludes the question portion of Section 1 concerning the Twin Towers. Both of our debaters now have uh, two minutes, or excuse me, three minutes, to summarize their positions, and again, by prior agreement, we'll start first with Mr. Chris Moore. Osama bin Laden said on video that he was behind the 9-11 attacks. Now, this is that picture of the, uh, the face, pretty grainy, as you know, and you always see it very grainy, of the fake fat bin Laden. But in fact, the original video, to me, he looks pretty skinny, as, as you can see here. That's, that's the skinny bin Laden that I'm used to. Terrorists attacked the World Trade Center in 1993. They finished the job in 2001. We did not find physical evidence of actual detonation materials or anything like that that would be used to set off explosions in a building. And in this era of WikiLeaks and all the other blogs and everything that are out there, not one whistleblower who's really on the inside of this supposed thing has brought any smoking gun information forward. The, the scientific evidence strongly points almost universally accepted theory of natural collapse. Now, you've been alone watching this debate for this part of it so far. Maybe something one of us said challenged your beliefs, and now you have a choice. If you believe Richard and his website will reassure you that your beliefs are correct and that he will probably have rebuttals for everything that I've said here today, um, so you can take that, that, you can take my sources home. If you believe me, you can go to the debunker sites. You can just take my sources that I have there. That can validate what you're saying. But what, what I would encourage you to do, if you agree or tend to agree with Richard Gage, look at my sources and see that I have a lot of information there. I don't want you to become yet another statistic in that attitude polarization study and use Use this debate as your opportunity to strengthen your pre-existing convictions. That's not what this debate is about. This debate is about opening our minds to other possibilities. We're on the CU campus here, here in Boulder, and it's wonderful that we're here. There are thousands of physics majors and engineering students that are right here on campus. You can ask any of them if a structure could be built that is 95% air and can resist 180 million pounds crashing down on it at 100 miles an hour. They might laugh. A lot of them laughed at me when I asked that. But I said, look, I'm sorry. I'm debating a guy who doesn't believe that. And I have to get this information. And I got it from 13, 14 different physicists, including other physicists who are right there um, on, a, on a chat site as well. I can't find anybody who disagrees with the power of gravity in, the, in that way. Now, at the same time, I try to hold my opinions lightly. I could be wrong about some of this stuff. And so I always have to ask myself, and all of us should do this too, are we really being truthful at the level of our heart? Can we always be open to reconsidering our entrenched positions and find something perhaps that's a little bit greater than our own certainties? I hope and pray that whatever we believe, that we respect those we disagree with, as Richard and I really respect one another. We, we genuinely like one another. And that really is love. And I hope that our hearts find peace so that we can share it with those of us and the whole world that is so sorely in need of it. Thank you.
Well, I'm not going to speculate about Osama bin Laden or whistleblowers. I'm going to talk about the evidence found at the debris, in the debris and in the eyewitness testimony, um, in, including the 10 features of explosive controlled demolition, which we have documented very carefully, all of which is direct evidence uh, of explosive controlled demolition, none of which can be accounted for by fire, not any of them. So when you fill out your forms, your audience survey poll today, I'm going to ask you to consider, was I convinced that the World Trade Centers were explosively uh, demolished? I believe that they, they were uh, in an extremely explosive uh, controlled demolition. My opponent is unable to account for many of the physical impossibilities and severe problems with the official account of events of the Twin Towers' destruction, highlighted in this three-year, $20 million, 10,000-page cover-up of the crime of the century. NIST refused to seriously consider the most likely hypothesis of explosive-controlled demolition, even though the National Guide for Fire and Explosion Investigation, NFPA 921, requires such investigation, given the overwhelming evidence, including high-order damage and blast pressure front effects, which we've documented. NIST neglected to test for explosives, thermite or nanothermite residue, and still refused to today, even when having been confronted with the peer-reviewed papers documenting evidence of nanothermite found in the World Trade Center dust by scientists, the billions of previously molten iron microspheres found in the World Trade Center dust by officials, the hundreds of witnesses hearing sounds of explosions, seeing flashes of light, hurled up uh, at the onset of destruction. Uh, the heavy steel framing hurled up to 600 feet laterally at 70 to 80 miles an hour. The high-speed ejections of the building solids 20 to 40 stories below the crush zone. Unnatural symmetrical debris distribution. Mid-air pulverization of 90,000 tons of concrete and metal decking. The missing stacks of 110 floors in the debris piles. And the participation of their own leaders, NIST's own leaders, in the development of nanothermite itself. And this implicitly condoned the illegal destruction of 99% of the World Trade Center structural steel framing evidence before the early investigations were even complete, implicit due to their non-whistleblowing of that illegal act. In short, this official technical explanation of the tower's collapse is inconsistent with the evidence and the basic laws of physics and may be deliberately fraudulent. Since it is difficult to imagine how so many qualified engineers could make so many mistakes, by contrast, the hypothesis of explosive controlled demolition is consistent with all of the available evidence and the laws of physics. Under Thank the description you, of the scientific method, we have no choice but to abandon the official account provided by NIST and to insist on a new investigation. Thanks a lot. We're doing all right here. <laughs> we'll see you guys soon. Uh, friends, I can tell you that while our two debaters are very, very well prepared, they are, for the most part, speaking extemporaneously. What do we say? <laughs> Thanks, you guys. Thanks.